Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Oren Kerr is here. He is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. He's a well-known guru of criminal procedure. More than 40 of his law review articles have been cited in judicial opinions. Seven of them have been cited by the Supreme Court, unless the court cite to his work in an opinion earlier this month makes eight. Um, maybe he can tell us. Uh, but indeed, in that recent opinion, Van Buren versus United States, which interprets the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, Professor Kerr pops up all over the place, both through his academic work and his amicus brief in the case, uh, and in both the court's opinion and the dissent. I, for one, am impressed. Uh, today, though, we're going to be talking about another uh, topic on which Professor Kerr is an authority border searches of digital devices. As Professor Kerr will explain, this area of law is a mess. But at its conference this week, the Supreme Court will consider three cert petitions, one brought by the federal government, one brought by the ACLU, and one brought by a pro se uh, that give the justices a chance to provide some clarity. Professor Kerr, it is an honor to have you on. Corbin, it's great to be here. Uh, it's a great topic and couldn't be more timely. So, so happy to talk. Indeed. We are recording this the day before the conference, and um, this will probably come out before they reach a decision. But I have a feeling that most of our listeners will know that this has either been granted or not. Uh, if it's granted, how timely? If it's not, this remains a very important topic that is likely to get taken sooner or later. Um, so let's dive in. We're talking about the Fourth Amendment, the border, and digital devices. So, uh, you know, when you're entering the country, basically, can a border agent search your smartphone or your laptop? And why? And what can she look for? Um, so to begin with, uh, Professor, you know, what makes the border special legally? And what's distinct about how the Fourth Amendment applies there? So... The question of the rules for searching a computer or cell phone at the border are really a clash between two lines of Supreme Court cases. The first line of Supreme Court cases says you basically don't have any Fourth Amendment rights at the border or you don't have if, if you, you have some, but they're really, really small and you don't traditionally have it in your property. And the thought is that the government has a sovereign interest at the border in making sure things don't come into the country that aren't supposed to come into the country um, and things don't leave the country that aren't supposed to leave the country. And so at the border, the government can um, check to see what's coming in and what's leaving. And if you think about it historically, historically, this makes a lot of sense. So the funding of the federal government in the late, uh, late 18th century, during the 19th century, was basically all about taxes being paid for stuff being imported. Um, and so the government had to take a look at what was coming in, uh, and you'd worry about contraband coming in. And so there was a sovereign interest. And the Supreme Court has said, this sovereign interest basically means at the border, the government can search what it needs to search. And an example of this would be a Supreme Court case from 2003, United States versus Flores Montano, uh, in which the government was uh, searched a car for drugs and they took, they suspected that the car might have some drugs in there, and they, they ended up taking apart the gas tank, uh, which it turns out was a fake gas tank. It was filled with marijuana. Uh, 
And the Supreme Court says they were the government was not only allowed to take apart the car without a warrant, they didn't even need any suspicion. This is just it's at the border. No rights at the border. So that's sort of body of law number one. And then body of law number two is this growing sense from Supreme Court cases in the last um, 10 years or so that computers are special from a Fourth Amendment standpoint. The computers have just so much information on them. And and that justifies different rules for searching computers than apply to searching physical devices. And the, the leading case here is a case called Riley versus California uh, that says that um, searching... Another case that discusses your work. Uh, sorry to pump you up. But... Yeah, I, I did get a citation on that one. Um, uh, but in, in Riley, the Supreme Court says uh, uh, the rules for searching cell phones incident to arrest are different for searching physical property uh, incident to arrest. Uh, and the ordinary rule is when the government arrests someone, they can search everything on that person. Um, they can go through the person's pockets. They can go through the person's wallet. They can go through their keys. They can go through anything that's sort of physical. And then Riley says, you can't apply that rule to cell phones because there's so much stuff on cell phones and the traditional interest justifying search incident to arrest don't apply to cell phones and, and electronic storage devices. So the government can't rely on this exception for cell phones. So basically what happens when you cross Riley with the border search is what these new cases or potential new cases are about. Such a fascinating collision between the border is special and smart devices are special. And as we were saying before we, we started recording, I mean, you never say, oh, the Supreme Court will grant something. Um, but this really is uh important and also just it's sexy from a legal perspective um it's such an interesting area now so far the lower courts have had to figure this out on their own and what we're seeing is um a, a, a different courts staking out the boundaries of this collision in different ways and frankly as i've read up on digital device border searches and i should mention here that tech freedom uh joined an amicus brief in one of these three petitions urging review um, I found myself having to make like decision trees to understand all the different distinctions the courts have drawn. So could you maybe help us out with a, a little sort of uh, try to orally give a bit of a picture of the distinctions that are being made here? So there are a bunch of different issues that you need to think about when you're trying to grapple with how the Fourth Amendment should apply at the border to computers. The the first question is, is there a border search exception at all for computers? Or do you say the border search exception just doesn't apply categorically? A warrant is needed to search at, at the border. If there is a border exception, you then need to start saying, what is the threshold for when a computer can be searched? Is it uh, no warrant, but probable cause is still required? Is it reasonable suspicion, which is a lower standard uh, than probable cause, or no cause at all, the traditional rule for the border search exception. Uh, and then once you determine the threshold showing, you then need to answer how broad can the search go based on that showing? Um, so if, let's say, there's the standard is reasonable suspicion, okay, the government has reasonable suspicion to start the search of the phone. How, how broad a search are they allowed to conduct? And then there's a last question, which you might you could consider, which is, can the government, how broadly can they search? Can they search everything and use everything? Are there limits on what they're allowed to ultimately use? 
uh, or or maybe only they're allowed to use border related crimes or only contraband crimes. So it it it's there are a lot of complicated issues here, which is why I suspect the court is interested in taking these. They they have these three different cases that are all being considered at the same conference. I wouldn't be surprised if they piece them together and have all a bunch of these issues considered to try to grapple with all of them together rather than just take a single case and try to answer these questions with a single case. Sure. And so of the three cases, I, I mean, we have uh, the Ninth Circuit, it's called Kano, and that one focuses more on the scope of the search. Once, once you're, you're in search land and what can you look for? And it it, it says it's pretty narrow. You can look for contraband, basically. Uh, and then we have a First Circuit case. That's the ACLU one, which is a little broader and talks about, you know, what can what can trigger a search. I'm actually not familiar with the pro se one. The poor pro se will probably get his case held if they grant it. Um, but if you want to elaborate on it, please do. Um, but so so they have sort of a, a buffet and they can craft it. I mean, do you think they might adjust the question presented or, or make their own? Or, or do you, can you foresee how they might deal with having three? It's hard to predict how they'll do it. I mean, I, I have ideas of how they should do it, but that's different from how they will do it, um, uh, assuming they, they take them at all, although I think sure. pretty likely they'll take them. And the, the biggest hint here is not only that this is a you know delicious circuit split that divides the lower courts and it's been around for a while, um, but the Justice Department is seeking review and the, the Supreme Court is usually pretty solicitous of, this, of the Justice Department when they say, hey, we, we need clarity on what the rules are. Please figure this out. Usually the justice will be like, all right, you, you're an institutional player. And so we recognize you're not just a one-off like, hey, take our case. You, you, you mean it when you say it. So um, I, the, the Supreme Court is likely to, to take this. And um, I there are different ways they could do it. They could say... Um, Here's Cano, and here's what we want. Here's the question we want Cano to answer. Here's Merchant versus Mayorkas. Here's the question or questions we want this case to consider. Or they could kind of combine them in some way and have them all try to answer a set of questions that the justices come up with. Um, I, I suspect they'll want to try to manage this because there are these separate issues raised, and there's no precedent from the Supreme Court on any of these pieces. So there's a lot to decide. Um, and they're contingent on each other. So for example, let's say the Supreme Court says there's no border search exception for computers. Well, once you say that, you don't need to answer anything else, right? So you don't need to answer what's the scope of the search because the scope is whatever the warrant says. You don't have an exception to have a scope. Um, so, so they're all kind of linked to each other. And I, I suspect they have these three cases and they scheduled them for the same conference. Um, probably to try to piece together what the right right questions are. Great, great. So let's let's dig in just a little bit to the, the merits here. Um, if I may bring in a, a devil's advocate, at least of how I view these things. So Judge William Pryor on the Eleventh Circuit, who's no fool, um, he came out with an opinion that was, uh, you know, we have the border is special, the computer is special, and he wrote an opinion that's just like the border wins in that toss up, and he said. You know, searching a smartphone at the border is no different than searching like a Winnebago coming through. Now, there's actually language in Riley that that kind of maybe curtails that, but he went there. And then he says, you know, border agents, look, they have a duty to protect the border from infiltration, you know, regardless of changes in technology. And um, with deep respect, I bring his views because now I'll say I, I, I just I 
I, I don't, I don't really, I don't know if I buy that. I mean, given what phones contain, and especially as cloud computing has expanded, I, I struggle to see how it's really a border search anymore. You're, there's material that is often stored elsewhere. And one point you brought up that's really interesting here to me is the plain view doctrine. Because once you bring the plain view doctrine into the search of a smart device, I don't see how a search of a smartphone is ever anything other than a generalized search for crime. Um, so how do you envision that? I mean, do you have strong opinions on the, the merits of the case or are you currently just sort of assessing how it might fall out? So there are a couple of different issues here. Uh, uh, let's start with Judge Pryor's view that kind of, you know, which basically is like, hey, our cases say the border's the border. Um, and from a standpoint of applying precedent in the 11th Circuit, that is what their cases say. You know, the, their cases are written pretty broadly, especially the circuit court cases in the 11th Circuit. Um, and so it'd be one possible approach to just say, yeah, the border is the border. Um, and there's this interest and there's this bright line rule. And we don't want to interfere with that bright line rule. Um, you know, the real problem with that, I think, is Riley says you don't just apply the rule. You look at the interests that the rule is advancing and you look to what rule is needed to advance those interests you don't sort of just take the rules in abstraction and so in, in let, let me focus a little bit on on riley because i think it's, it's really helpful to think more about this so and this is search incident to arrest this is the rules where the government has arrested somebody and they search their property in in robinson a case from 1973 which involved a crumpled cigarette package uh that contained drugs the Supreme Court says, listen, we have the search incident to arrest doctrine for two reasons. One is we're worried about officer safety. Somebody could have a gun in their pocket or a knife in their pocket, and we don't want the officer to bring somebody into arrest, and then suddenly the person pulls a knife on them and stabs the officer, and so we want to make sure officers can disarm somebody when they arrest them, okay? Uh, and then second, there might be evidence relating to the crime of arrest that's on the person that the person could then destroy if the officer does not search them. They've got the drugs from the drug arrest, and they they get rid of them when the officer is not looking, and we want the officer to be able to seize that to prevent it from being destroyed. And the Supreme Court says in, Ro in Robinson, this is again back in 1973, we're not going to go case by case. We've got to just, we need a rule for what happens when officers arrest someone. And the answer is these interests are sufficiently advanced by a search of the person that we're going to say bright line rule, every arrest, you're always allowed to search the person. Um, and then in Riley, the Supreme Court says, well, wait a minute, when it's digital, that's really a different situation. First of all, there's not a concern with officer safety. You don't need to search the cell phone to prevent data in the phone from hurting the officer. You know, it's just zeros and ones. Uh, that's not going to hurt the officer. So the, the officer safety rationale doesn't apply. And you can advance the interest in preventing destruction of the property by just taking the computer or taking the cell phone from the person's pocket, seizing it, putting it into airplane mode, and it's protected. Uh, sort of the nature of the physical and the nature of the digital are just different. If you apply that rationale to the border search exception, you know, I think it 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 gives the defense a pretty a pretty good argument here that the border search exception maybe shouldn't apply at all, um, and if it should apply, that it's a lot narrower than in the physical setting. Because what is the purpose of the border search exception? Well, the purpose of the border search exception is, uh, you know, traditionally 
to prevent property from coming in the United States or leaving the United States, um, and to uh, 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 that that's not supposed to be brought in. Well, that's not really what the border search exception is being applied for in these sorts of cases. You could you could achieve that same interest again by just seizing the device rather than searching the device. Um, uh, and and really what we're dealing with is a world in which everyone's carrying a cell phone with them. That's what the Supreme Court recognized in Carpenter. And they just have tons of evidence on them. And so the government is really interested in the evidence on them, not in keeping the data in or out. And another really interesting part of this puzzle is that, um, uh, uh, that if you really want to bring data inside the United States or you want to take data outside the United States and you want to do it in a way that the government can't detect it, you're not going to bring you're it on You're going to put it in a bucket and carry it across the border you're physically. Gonna, yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to encrypt it, first of all, in a way that the government can't tell that it's data that the government is looking for. Or you're going to email it or send it electronically or you know, FTP or whatever. Um, you're not just going to have it in a device. So so if you, if you use the Riley rationale and focus on the Riley rationale, it, to me pretty strongly suggests that either you cut back or even eliminate the the uh, border search exception, just given the nature of digital data. So so I think what what is at stake and what's going on in this case is a lot of kind of, do you apply the rule that existed, which is what Judge Pryor had done? Do you focus on the function of the rule, the purposes of the rule, and wh how much of a bright line rule do you need in those, uh, once you once you do whichever of those options you think is right. So I think that's probably what will be in play if the, if the court ends up taking these cases. I mean, personally, I, I see a couple different routes the Supreme Court could go in, in just finding that it doesn't make sense to apply the border exception on the phone. I mean, one, talking about, uh, you mentioned the purpose and the defenses I'm seeing um, all are arguments that would apply at any point. So, you know, um, Child pornography is a, is a terrible scourge and something that, you know, we should combat. Um, but there's no real reason that the border connects to child porn at this point. I mean, I, unless you tell me I'm wrong here, it's not like people who are going to import it are going to like download it onto their phone and carry it across the border instead of trying to send it in digitally. And so we could equally just say, well, let's set up a checkpoint at every town square and just search everybody's phone. We could combat child porn that way. I mean, it, the, the Fourth Amendment specifically protects against that. And so I don't see a real nexus, you know, to use the fancy legal term between the border and that interest. Um, and well, that's kind of go ahead. I, I think there, there is an argument here. Um, uh, it. It's not a slam dunk. I'm dubious about it myself, but I think it's important to get that argument out there, which oh, runs absolutely, like, yeah, yeah. which runs something like that, something like this. Um, the government generally does not have law enforcement powers outside the United States, and so when someone's coming into the United States for the first time, let's say they've engaged in, uh, you know international sex trafficking or something like that, and they're coming into the United States and they happen to have images of child pornography on their on their devices. That's kind of the, the United States government's first opportunity to engage in policing or to detect individuals with um, uh, with these uh, with evidence of these crimes from abroad in the United States. And there's kind of an interesting question of whether the starting point should be that somebody gets a chance to be have their full 
you know, constitutional protections at that outset, or whether the government should have an opportunity before they've entered the United States, before they're like, you know, get all the full constitutional protections to have a chance to figure out what they're up to and, and whether they're engaging in crime. It's sort of like a, it's like a threshold question of, 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 you know, when law enforcement powers begin, should the beginning point be people get to start with their full constitutional protections? They can sort of arrange their affairs in a way that when they arrive in U.S. territory, the government can't search them without a warrant? Or should the government get this sort of intro moment where they can search them before they come inside and get full protections? And 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 I think there's you know, that's an argument there that the government should be able to start that just, they get a blip moment where they can search before somebody is allowed in and they get their full protections. And then to my mind, what, what, what cuts back on that is uh, going back to the, the fact that somebody can just encrypt their data or email it uh, or, you know, whatever, send it electronically. Um, there, if you want to, there's really no way of stopping somebody from starting with that full set of constitutional protections because of the means of electronically sending information. So, so it seems to me that even if you say in a world where there's no computers, hey, it makes sense to to give the government a chance to figure out what's coming in or leaving before that moment occurs where the law enforcement powers start. Um, even if that applies, once you add in digital information, it doesn't seem like a physical search of a physical device is the way to deal with that problem um, in an electronic age. Yeah, I mean, and and Kano actually explicitly said it wasn't dealing with cloud computing. And, and I, I think that increasingly needs to be addressed. I mean, because as cloud computing becomes increasingly per pervasive, can you even be said to be importing something um, if you, you happen to have your phone that's basically just a node connected somewhere else? Um, although you're, you're, you're talking about the maybe like there's a special entry point right for the United States at uh, that point. Actually, it ties into the other thing I was going to the other potential route that I see, at least, for the Supreme Court to, to rule in favor of sort of smartphones are special. And that is, um, you know, the Supreme Court in Montoya de Hernandez basically said the border exception means routine searches. Now, remarkably, that means like taking apart your gas tank, as you mentioned, but still routine searches. And in that case, you know, you, they're saying, well, a strip and a cavity search is not routine. Like that's, a, that's really invasive. And um, you might say that that really is a rule about bodily integrity. Like the body is special. They're bringing a third special um, here. Uh, but you could also argue that, no, like the searching your smartphone is this unique invasiveness. Um, and I don't know, does, is that a potential route that they could go? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Montoya de Hernandez case that you mentioned is kind of the government's best argument that that hey, the rule for a physical bodily intrusion is still only reasonable suspicion. Like they, I mean, imagine a physical bodily search is about as you know as a, a, a big a deal as most people would imagine, and to say. Wow, well, cell phones, cell phones have just a, a much, you know, we're much more worried about searching a smart, a, a cell phone than we are about physically invading a person's bodily cavity. Um, and so I think the government, and this is along the lines of Judge Pryor's argument, is like, well, 
a bodily cavity search is the most invasive, and we're still just talking about data here that's not as invasive. It's not you know as big a deal. Um, and so the standard should be either, you know, maybe it's, I think, I, I suspect if the court takes these cases, the Justice Department would be happy with a reasonable suspicion standard, sort of, you know, there's a, a bunch of different decisions they could they could get. I don't think the government is going to expect to, to, to get a no-cause-at-all rule. Um, but, but, you know, they're going to point to the body cavity reference point. And I think the counter-argument to that would be, yes, body cavity searches are incredibly invasive, but those searches still advance the government interest in detecting contraband entering the United States because they're still physical searches. And so it's still part of that thing of trying to get physical stuff. Uh, and so you still it, can't upload cocaine to the cloud. That's and, right. Uh... That's right. Yeah. So you, you, you say like, well, God, that is really bad, but it's still about that thing Whereas cell phone searches are kind of categorically not about that. They're really about looking for evidence, um, given that you can just electronically send data uh, all around the world. Um, and so I, I suspect that, that'll be a really interesting reference point um, for, you know, what do you make of that as a standard? And I suspect the justices that um, um, I, this is not an issue on which I would expect the justices to be unanimous. And I think those that are going to be more on the government side are going to point to the physical body cavity case uh, Montoya de Hernandez as a reference point. Well, uh, let me throw one more sort of devil's advocate point at you. Um, I've seen a couple judges who are grappling with this say, look, um, if Congress wants to provide heightened rights at the border, it is perfectly capable of doing so. It could pass a law giving you a probable cause standard if it in its policy judgment wants to. And this is a complicated issue. You know, there are potential national security uh, connections to the border. You know, terrorist activity is a concern. Um, so why not just uh, sort of keep the bar low and give the government a lot of power and then just see what the people's representatives decide? Always a fair argument. Congress can always add uh, protections beyond the constitutional floor. I mean, I, I think, nonetheless, no matter what Congress does, there's still this constitutional question of how these principles apply. And so um, you, you still have to do the kind of constitutional analysis and balance of the interests and look, you sort of do the, the Riley um, uh, uh, in addition to whatever Congress might do. Um, I do want to uh, 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 go back to one point uh, you'd mentioned earlier, the plain view exception, which is this idea that if the government is legitimately searching for one kind of evidence and they come across other kinds of evidence, they're allowed to take that, um, which is a huge issue in computer searches, because if the government has authorization to begin a search and they come across other evidence of crime, then they that turns into a, you know, there's so much stuff on a Yeah, computer. once you're in, you're in. I mean, it's the ultimate camel's nose under the tent, it seems to yeah. me. It's sort of like, you know, do, 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 the way I've expressed it before is do, do computer searches become general searches just by virtue of the technology? There's just so much stuff. And what do you do about that? Well, and what fine. makes, if the court takes these border search cases, what makes it extra tricky? Here's like, here's something I hope the justices are focused on. There are no, it is still uncertain whether the plain view exception applies to computers at all. 
And so one way you might approach the, this problem of the scope of computer searches outside of the border search exception is to eliminate the plain view exception for digital searches, basically do a Riley on the plain view doctrine. And then that changes the scope of searches in a way that may want you, you may, if you're a justice trying to come up with like a sensible rule that balances the interest in light of the interest advanced by the border search exception and all that kind of stuff, um, you might have a different rule depending on whether you assume there's a plain view exception for digital searches outside of the border exception, which is undetermined right now. So that's something the lower courts are grappling with. And this is, this is um, always a problem in Fourth Amendment law as you sort of break into a new area like computer searches. The justices are sort of very practically trying to figure out what's the implication of this decision and how will that decision play out? And they don't know what the background rules are because they're just starting this journey into computer searches and there's a path dependence problem. So it may be that the justices say, well, gosh, we need to eliminate the border search exception for computers because once you get into a computer, everything comes into plain view. And then that means no border search exception for computers, basically more privacy rights for people. But they then later use that to say that they're can still be a plain view exception for computer searches, um, lessening rights down the road. So, so these are all kind of linked together and, and hopefully the justices will be aware of all the different puzzles that they're sort of just beginning to solve and be aware of the, the different, different paths they might take and how that might play out. Well, to tie back, to, to go back to my question about legislative control versus, you know, the Constitution, you know, one thing I've always found so interesting about the Fourth Amendment is, you know, even if you want to take an originalist view, like it's got the word reasonable sitting in there, which always has seemed to me to be this invitation to judges to do more of a common law um, standard setting, uh, you know, than maybe in other areas. And um so they have to weigh these interests and okay, so the phone is crossing the border and you get in and there's all this stuff and everybody's saying, oh, well, there might be evidence of terrorist activity or uh, contraband or, or what have you. Well, bear in mind, we are in a time of just rapid technological change and 25 years ago, you just wouldn't have been able to find that evidence. It would be elsewhere. I mean, just people wouldn't be crossing the border with it. So it's not like you're really necessarily even being deprived of something as the government. Um, but then if judges are just being asked what's reasonable, it, you know, whether you see it the way I just put it or whether you see it in the judge prior way, you know, there seems to be a lot of just sort of in the eye of the beholder to it. Yeah, there's an aspect of uh, computer searches, which is kind of what do you do with the windfall? Um, I like that. That's much better put than, than mine. This, my is also, this is also an issue in Carpenter versus United States, the historical cell site location records case where um, everyone is carrying cell phones and cell phones generate cell site records of what what tower they were near at various times. And the government can go back and gather these records that didn't used to exist. Um, and so the question is, if you go from one world where the government generally can't reconstruct where somebody was located to another world where often the government can reconstruct where somebody is located, suddenly there's this extra data. Who gets the benefit of the data? Is Do we say, oh, the, the, the data is warrant protected or the data is not warrant protected? And Carpenter um, from 2018, which says that the historical cell site location records, at least in some aggregate, are protected, basically is saying like, you know, there, this windfall shouldn't expand government power. That we need, we need to be attuned to, to what extent 
does technology shift the balance between the citizen and the state? And where technology, not through any design, but just like the the way it happened to play out through the companies and what they're doing, the way it happens to give, oop, suddenly there's this whole new category of data. We've got to give, we can't give that windfall to the government outside of constitutional protection. That uh, that changes the balance. And and I've, I've called this methodology equilibrium adjustment because that's what law professors do. We give fancy academic titles to intuitive ideas. Um, but it's basically just, hey, the Fourth Amendment is dealing with this balance between the power of the, 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 you know, the citizen, what the citizen can do and what the government can do and where technology comes around and and it shifts the prior balance not through design but just because that's just what the technology has done the court has a tendency to alter the old rules to try to restore the balance to what it was before the technology came around and it's done this in it did this in the automobile cases in the 1920s and it did this in the telephone cases in the 1960s uh, and i think if you look at fourth amendment history it just keeps doing this again and again whenever a new technology pops up and we're now in the era of computer equilibrium adjustment where the justices mm -hmm. are like wow computers have come along and, and, and it's just really changing the amount of information that the government can get. What rules do we take that kind of restore us to kind of where we were before? And I, I suspect that the border search cases are going to be another example after Riley and after Carpenter of this equilibrium adjustment where the court says, gosh, suddenly like, you know, millions of people are crossing the border every day, or you know, incredible numbers of people crossing the border, and they're carrying these devices which have a massive amount of information. Why should the government get the benefit of all of that information suddenly all available to them just because of the happenstance of how technology happens to change? See Carpenter, see Riley. And that's that's kind of, I think, how the justices will look at it. And then then you get into the details of like, you know, does that mean no exception or a limited exception? And that that's kind of going to be, I think, where the, the difficult analysis comes from. Well, this has been so much fun, Professor. By the time, no, well, shortly after I think this episode drops, we're going to have an answer. It's going to be granted or not. Um, if it's not granted, all of this remains very relevant. Um, I don't want to make you blush, but, uh, you know, you may well have a, an actual influence on on the court. I mentioned, you know, either seven or eight of your articles have been um, cited. So uh, we've been dancing around and you've, you've kind of given the answer in pieces, but um, and don't feel obligated to really come down on a side. But uh, here's your chance. I mean, so how would you like to see the question presented framed? And um, what outcome are you looking for? And, and, you know, is there any of your work out there that you're, you're planning to point to or, or that's upcoming that you're working on that you can preview for us? So my, my main hope at this stage is just that they take on as many of these issues as they can. Um, what's really frustrating from a standpoint of development of the law is when they take a teeny piece of a puzzle and you just don't know what to make of what they're taking on because you don't know the context of what they're doing. So I, I really hope they will say, we want to take on, does the exception exist? If it exists, what's the cause standard? Based on the cause standard, how far can the search go? What evidence can be used? Like the more they kind of take all of these cases as an opportunity to answer all those questions, that, that would be great. 
um, and to, to to basically to make sure they see the whole picture is 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 goal number one. Um, in terms of my own views, I have not really written on this issue. I've I've um, thought about it and I've taught it uh, uh, for many years. Uh, over time, um, my view has has sort of shifted. Um, I I I think the easiest opinion to write. I guess I'd put it this way: if you're you know you you imagine you're a you know, so, someone's a justice and they have to sit down or a law clerk and they have to write an opinion. The easiest opinion to write is one saying that there's no exception. Just see Riley. I think that's probably that's probably the easiest opinion to write. I don't know if they'll go that far, but, you know, thinking back to Riley, we didn't think they would go as far as they did. And, and they did. Yeah, <laughs> and so, Chief Justice right? Roberts, who's normally yeah, kind of a minimalist. A, you unanimous know. opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. So, so I had to guess that's probably... Um, the answer, and then and then you get into tricky questions of what do you do? What, what if they if they take that direction? I think you end up with sort of hard questions of okay, can the government seize all electronic storage devices at the border? Because if they really do have an interest in keeping things in and out, they need to stop the property from coming in. And then how long can they hold on to those devices? Can they? Can they block the devices from coming in or, you know, what, what do you do with the seizure part of holding on to the property? Or if they don't have probable cause to search it, can they not hold on to it? There's, there's, and, and that, that was a, a part of Riley that's super interesting too, where, you know, ser searching incident to arrest, the government is going to hold on to the property for how long can they hold on to the to the property incident to arrest. You know, the person comes in this process and is let go. Can they still hold on to the phone? That's something that lower courts are, are still grappling with now. Um, but I, if if the court ends up saying there's no border search exception, I think you get um, you get all of those questions of what can the government do in terms of holding on to the uh, holding on to the phones or, or computers, um, copying them, and and then that will get us all into the next issue that the Supreme Court is probably going to determine uh, maybe in a term or two, which is. How about um, help unlocking the devices? Because most of these cell phones are going to be locked, um, and then and then you get into the Fifth Amendment privilege issues with assistance in unlocking, and that's that's that that may be next term. Invite me back, and we'll talk about that one. There's that one. so much fun stuff here. Well, we'll all just have to stay tuned, uh, Professor Kerr. It's been a privilege to pick your brain on these issues. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>